Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Revealing Grace. In this episode, we'll be continuing with the format of interviewing pastors from across the country. For this episode and many of the episodes of Revealing Grace, we were not face-to-face, but we were able to record it virtually. And as such, we have video footage of us recording the episode. So if you are interested in watching us as we record, uh, you can go to brianchapel.com and you will find all the episodes of Revealing Grace and the videos that go with them. I would love for you to check that out and would encourage you to see what other resources are there as well. And now I'm excited for you to hear this episode with Walter Henniger. Welcome in to Revealing Grace. This is a podcast focused on the revelation of God's redeeming grace throughout all of scripture and the power that it has to transform lives eternally. I'm Chris Sobeck, and as always, we are joined by Dr. Brian Chapel. For this episode, we will also be joined by Pastor Walter Henniger, who's a senior pastor of Atlanta Westside, which he planted with a core group of friends in 2007. Now, prior to that, he was an associate pastor at Westside's mother church, Christ Church Presbyterian. Walter grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He went to college in Chicago and received a seminary training in Philadelphia. Now, before wait, wait, seminary, we, we have to say we have to say the name of the college. <laughs> we are we are both alums. So, what was the name of that college, Walter? Oh, Northwestern. Northwestern University. See, we have. To, I we forgot have to that sure that, connection. Yeah. Make sure that everybody knows that. There you go, Chris. I Sorry, was. Go- I was. No, no, you're fine. I mean, I'm just reading his bio, so he knows it already. But, uh, <laughs> but I was going to ask. So, um, but I do have some follow up questions here in a second. So, uh, before seminary, he worked in Nashville as a carpenter a public relations executive and a business writer. Uh, Walter and his wife, Anne, met as infants and have been married since 1995. So my question about this is, did you get married as infants? Or because it feels it feels a little misleading here, but but clearly when you guys met, you hit it off okay. Um, and then also that you have two daughters, Abigail and Emily. Um, you love watching movies, discovering new music, and apparently you're also a little bit of a musician as well, playing a little mandolin. So is that the only instrument you play? I I it's I it's the only instrument I currently play. I play a little bit of guitar, played piano and trumpet as a kid, but yeah. Okay. Okay. So you've been married since 95 and how did you meet it? Like family friends or how did you meet as infants? Our fathers grew up together. They met and I think it was 1944, 1945 in the church nursery at first Presbyterian church in Knoxville, Tennessee. And they uh, went to junior high school together, high school together, college together, were in each other's weddings And when their second born children were born a month apart, they got together a few months later, set them in car seats on a table next to each other and took a a photograph of us. So we have this photo as infants holding hands. And then, of course, I immediately lost interest uh, for about uh, 18 years. But when uh, her sister was getting married, I volunteered to go to the wedding. Uh, I grew up in Chattanooga and she in Knoxville. So uh, I just heard that she was all grown up and we started writing letters. We were in kind of the last sort of cohort of people that that regularly wrote uh, letters by snail mail. We, we started doing email after a bit, but um, yeah, she went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and 
we corresponded through college and and got married a, a couple of years afterward. That's awesome. That's awesome. So um, that almost could be my revealing question, but I have a revealing question of this episode. Uh, so I know that you uh, had uh, schooling in both Chicago and in Philadelphia. So assuming that you ate in both locations, I have to ask, cheesesteak or Chicago-style Italian beef? Oh, I thought you were going to say Chicago-style deep dish pizza. That would, no, that see, I, well, but I, well, okay, and that's fair. But I just they're they're like similar sandwiches, but different. Yeah, so. yeah. I I'm gonna go with Chicago for all things food. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good man. Good man. See, I'm originally from Chicago, so I'm biased. Yes. But, uh, but, but there we go. Okay. Brian, I, you're welcome to answer that question as well. I don't know if you have an opinion on the matter. Um, uh, deep dish Chicago pizza. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, there we go. We have a winner. So awesome. Um, well, to get into, I guess, a little bit uh, more serious things and more to the point of this uh, podcast, um, you know, you shared some things with us recently, and there's uh, an excerpt from an article. Uh, it, it starts off with this. And so I wanted to, to read it back to you and then have some follow up questions. So you said, uh, before I became a pastor, I could not say I was estranged from a single soul. Almost 20 years in, the list is longer than I would have ever thought bearable. It includes some of my most intimate former friends and ministry partners, people whose secrets I still carry, and they mine. Some have betrayed me. Some would say I have betrayed them. All those, plus hundreds of beloved people who, for legitimate reasons, have left my church. So knowing that this is the reality of those to whom you have ministered and and will minister, how do you stand up? and preach to a congregation every week. I'm eager to hear uh, what Brian will say to this as well. But uh, personally, I I was drawn to, to being a pastor in many ways as an extension of my childhood with friends, uh, appreciating the church that I grew up in and the, the truth that I learned, but not really experiencing the church as an intimate community. Uh, early on. And then in college, uh, where my faith really kind of began to thrive and relationships grew deeper and deeper, uh, I, I began to get a vision for for what the church could be. And, and through seminary and, and realizing the depth of the biblical doctrine of the church, so incredibly moving to me. I wanted to be a, a shepherd surrounded by the sheep. I wanted to be someone that both enjoyed the community of the faithful as well as helped to cultivate it. And, and that desire has always been been deep within me. But the, the reality in that quote you just mentioned is that along with the joy comes uh, a tremendous amount of heartbreak. And, um, and I'm, I'm comforted by a few things. I mean, number one, uh, that Jesus promised us suffering and, and he, his own ministry on earth and the ministry of everyone who followed him demonstrates the same pattern. If you, you love people, your heart will be broken over and over again. And I've said before that the nothing has so expanded my heart as much as the church and nothing has broken my heart as much as the church. And I, I think that the two are connected and, but the, the breaking really does, in, in many ways, open room for, for new expansion. When I, if I look out at the church, if I stand up and preach, 
And if I'm thinking about all the people that I love who are no longer with us or people who would not darken the door because they don't even like to think of my name. <laughs> um, if I thought of them only, I, I would just despair. But I look out on a Sunday morning and, and not only are there people that I think this person fills me with delight and I did not even know that person a year ago. Uh, the church is constantly drawing in God's people that uh, have new gifts, new experiences, new backgrounds that enrich my life in tremendous ways. I, I could be preaching to a future son-in-law. I could be preaching to the person who will preach my own funeral. I could be preaching to the person who will care for my family if I die. Like the the possibilities within the church for for joy and delight are are always what uh, pull me forward, even in the face of, of the heartbreak that's, that's so close under the surface. Uh, surely Brian can resonate with some of that. <laughs> I, I, I can resonate with it. I'm not sure I can improve on it. I mean, uh, Chris, one of the things that uh, Walter is known for, he has such a ability to see into people's hearts. And when he preaches, they know he sees into their hearts. And part of it is, it just kind of the honesty that he just spoke with uh, about his own heart. So I, I recognize all those things. I, I, I know I, I wrote a book recently and I, I began a chapter by saying, this will be the hardest chapter I know I have to write. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the title of the chapter is not catchy. The title of the chapter was evil. One word. And it's, it's so much reflecting what Walter just said. I mean, if, if I count the people who have, I think hurt me the most. They typically are people in the church. Um, I have been stolen from, lied to, talked about, betrayed. And I think virtually all those people I will see in heaven. I, I mean, I think generally they're Christians mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. I, and uh, they may think the same about me, but we almost have to, to learn about ourselves that we we can accomplish, we can do things we never thought we would do. We can be thought of having done things we would never do, mm. and um, it it doesn't remove the responsibility to preach God's word because He loves those people. Mm -hmm. And um, but everything Walter said, I mean, I think my greatest joys have been in the church, and my greatest pains have been in the church, and um, it, but also my greatest obligation is in the church. Mm. And preaching the word to people that Jesus loves, that yeah. he calls his friends, uh, are um, joyful obligations, though sometimes quite difficult. And mm. uh, and I, I, I don't think I can say it better than Walter said it. You, you talked about um, obligations and, and you talked about like needing and, and desiring to reach a certain uh, group of people that is within the church. Uh, you know, I think of uh, Walter, the church that you're at and, and planting that. Um, why don't you share a little bit about the neighborhood and, and kind of some of the characteristics of your church and, and the congregates that are in your church. Um, and I'm curious to hear if the, the people that you have found coming to your church reflect who maybe you were originally anticipating or hoping would be in your church. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, I, anytime I talk to people who are considering church planting, they, if anybody asks me for advice, my, my standard first line is uh, don't overrealize your eschatology, which is a technical way of saying 
don't think that just because you have this one great idea for a church plant that the kingdom of God is going to come in its fullness in every way that you dream it will. And, uh, and I think uh, to some extent, uh, I had that same youthful hubris when we started. We had a lot of dreams for our church. Uh, everything that I'd learned in scripture and learned in seminary was just... Um, I, I wanted it all. There was there was no piece of no good thing about a church that I would not put into our vision, and so we we moved to Atlanta in 2002 and serving Christ Church in, in Buckhead. And Buckhead is a is a very affluent part of Atlanta, and we wanted to be as close as possible. We really believe in sort of a local parish mentality toward living in general, and so this neighborhood on the west side was the closest we could get to to Buckhead and afford it. It was transitional, uh, had been blue collar for decades and decades, and a lot of manufacturing, this sort of uh, um, one of the last areas of in-town Atlanta that had not been gentrified. And in the, the 20 years since we moved here and the 15 years since we started our church, uh, gentrification has uh, set in fully. I remember um, there was a little coffee shop we used to go to where if you parked your car out behind the the coffee shop, you'd, you'd be worried that it would be there when you got back. Uh, a couple of years ago, I went to that same coffee shop, which now has a huge development built around it. And I parked next to a $280,000 Ferrari. And I thought, yeah, the neighborhood's um, it's different now. Uh, so, it's it's become hip. It's become even younger than it already was. Uh, it's true to the, the character of, of in town Atlanta. It's uh, it's very ethnically diverse, uh, but often kind of in all of these subtle ways segregated in terms of uh, culture and particular pockets of neighborhoods. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of wealth. And, and there's a lot of people that uh, when we started our church 15 years ago were um, just figuring out how to be an adult. And, and in, uh, in, in all this time since, uh, some of them have become uh, really influential leaders in the cities and built businesses and started incredible ministries. And so it is, it's nothing like what I dreamed it would be. <laughs> I, I don't think I even... I don't think I even really put much energy into thinking about well, what happens when these uh, single people get married and the married people have kids and the kids that are little become medium sized and the medium sized kids become big kids. You know, there's just, it's, uh, it's nothing like what I dreamed, uh, but I've, I take a lot of comfort in, um, in the metaphor of the body, you know, in first Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians four and, and the, Romans 12, 18, God arranges the members of the body as he chose, uh, not, not me. So, uh, as he puts a body together, I, uh, it's my job to, to love it with some fraction of the love that, that he has for it. You know, to take things uh, back to talking about friendships, you know, as you're talking about all these different people coming to your church, um, are there certain aspects, uh, you know, whether it's location or, or these demographics or the type of people, spiritual maturity uh, that make friendships harder or easier? For, for me as a pastor or for them? Uh, for, well, I guess either, but I was thinking for you. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I mean, one of the main, main points of my article is that, uh, there's a there's a kind of friendship that 
I don't expect to find among the members of my church a kind of friendship that is that is mutual, balanced, bidirectional, uh, where the only reason that we're in relationship is because God has drawn our hearts to each other. Um, so, with with the people in my church, I, I'm, I'm always wearing the pastor hat, even if we just love each other and delight in each other's company. And so, I, I think that fact alone uh, just it doesn't mean you, you're not friends with the people in your church. Uh, the, this it's my community. These are these are the dearest people around to me. But um, it's it's different. So <laughs> there's there's definitely a challenge there. There's also you mentioned the the demographics in the area of town that we're in, and and having been gentrified so much, uh, wealthy, successful, edu- highly educated people are moving at warp speed constantly. And uh, simply getting in front of each other uh, sometimes is really challenging. Getting each other's full attention is really challenging. Uh, you know, friendship requires leisure and uh, happenstance and the kinds of things that you, you can't schedule with your calendar. And um, so, yeah, lot, lots of challenges there. And I'd say probably if there's, if there's one thing that has helped more than anything else it's it's living close to one another. The the people who whom I can get to their house in like five minutes, it 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 works. It doesn't work automatically, but you still have to be deliberate. But uh, it the the it lowers the barrier so much. And and yet, as as good as having those kinds of friends, Walter, you were saying. I mean, the name of the article is "Your Pastor Needs Pastor Friends." Why? Yes. Well, I mean, what what did you, I mean, I certainly yeah. agree with that. And yet I want to say it becomes important for people who are listening to, why do I need pastor friends? Yeah. I, I tell the story in, in the article that I wrote. Uh, I, I had a pastor friend uh, about, it's been about 12 years now, who um, kind of abruptly ended up leaving town. And I looked around and I realized he was not just my last pastor friend, but my last like local friend friend that I just got together with because we cared about each other. And and I, I started talking to a counselor, and my counselor said, "You need to find some more friends." And do you have any idea, like you know, what sort of people you might want to befriend? And I said, "All I know is I don't want pastors uh, because most of my experience with pastors, uh, probably not by anybody's." Uh, intention was that th- there's just this kind of air of, of competition or sizing each other up or, you know, how many people did you baptize this year? Or how big is your church or what, you know? And uh, I just, I, f- I always felt small in the company of other pastors. And my counselor said, uh, yeah, you're going to have to get over that because nobody knows what it's like to be a pastor, but another pastor. And, and that, that wisdom has, has really borne out in my life that, uh, other other pastors in particular that I do have other friends outside the church that aren't pastors, but but the men who are have been an absolute lifeline to me. What do they provide? Sanity, uh, a sense of perspective. I mean, more than anything, I think on, on the most fundamental level, uh, they get it. They you don't have to to explain it or 
or you don't have to endure uh, the sort of well-intentioned. What are you kidding? You got lots of people who love you and care for you. What? What's you know? What are you sad about? Why? You know? Yeah, sure. Some people left your church, but look at the people who are coming. You know, that's the kind of things that, that people will say, and they they just don't realize your heart is breaking. And so, yeah, kind of the the you're not crazy. They understand what you're dealing with, and and it also. You know, I've been in a lot of contexts from seminary on where people in ministry talk strategically about um, shop talk. How, how do you organize small groups? How do you develop leaders? That kind of thing. And that to me always felt uh, performative or or I felt pressure to get it right in, the, in that sort of formal uh, classroom or seminar kind of con- context. But, but when you're talking with a friend and you're saying, here's, here's my church, and this is this need that these people have that I love, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to sort this through, uh, their, their counsel and their wisdom on those sort of shop-talky kinds of questions uh, becomes much more influential because uh, they've walked through that as well, or they are walking through it at the, at the same time. Uh, I, I really resonated, Walter, with the I, I'm not crazy, <laughs> and but the other, which you were implying in the following, and I'm not alone either. Yes. You know, I mean, you, you're you just at times, because people don't understand in the church how painful yeah. certain things are, the sense of, are things going to be okay, and anxiety over all the things that pastors are anxious about, do they like yeah. me, how'd that sermon go, are they going to mm-hmm. fire me, will they love my wife? <laughs> uh, can we make the budget? Can we reach our neighbors? You know, how do I line up next to the guy down the street? You know, all the things that we mm-hmm. we think I must be crazy because other people don't seem to worry about this. If you actually have pastor friends, they're all worried about all those things. Yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, and in, I mean, it helps to know. You know, misery loves company, but ministry loves company too, right? To say, um, you know, I'm I'm not alone in this. And particularly, yeah. I think when you find, I, don't you need kind of all levels? You need you need peers who are kind of able to tell you you're not alone. You probably need, you know, the older pastors at time to say you'll get through this. Mm-hmm. And and then maybe you need younger pastors to say, you know, I really respect what you're doing, having having taken a few lumps and still doing it. I mean, all those all those dimensions of friendship are helpful with other pastors. Absolutely. And sometimes when they're sharing their own experiences, you there can be a certain kind of comfort where you think, well, I thought I was having a hard time, but it can clearly be worse. <laughs> You're sort of comforted in another's suffering uh, as you seek to comfort them, of course. But uh, And other times it, it really helps for somebody to say, yeah, I've been through a lot, but what you're dealing with right now is next level. And that's that's just, um, like you said, Brian, you, you feel like you're not alone. No, I, I, I'm, I'm enough of a sinner that I know there were times in my life when I would hear of pastors say, you know, these people left my church. Uh, this program did not succeed. Uh, these This number of people is mad at me. That internally I'm thinking, about that other pastor, I'm thinking, well, you know, if you just did it right, you know, things, yeah. you, you know, if you, if you knew, if you knew things as well as I did, or if you had, you know, if you'd done better, 
then everything would have worked out differently and better. And at times we need to take our own lumps and, and learn, you know, no matter how good, how able, how smart, um, the world's bigger and stronger than you are. And things are going to happen in a fallen world that you can't control. And that's why you need a Lord. And um, I, I know at times it, it has bothered me. I, I remember a man once uh, early in my ministry who's saying, I'd been too zealous for my own reputation. And I thought, man, I better listen to that because I know how zealous I am for my reputation. Mm-hmm. And if you can't give up your reputation at some point, you can't minister to people because there's your reputation is on the line too frequently and mm. protecting it rather than helping God's people. But sometimes fellow ministers, sorry, sometimes fellow ministers are the ones who are hardest on our reputations, right? Because yeah, we all yeah. assume if you did it right, things would have gone better until yeah. it doesn't go well for us. Mm. And, and it seems like if, I, I don't know if age is a cure for that, tendency but it it certainly has helped because you it's just it's harder to judge other people when you've you've tried it yourself and <laughs> and failed in your own ways uh i i even talking to younger pastors as well i find myself uh trying to walk this delicate balance when it, especially when i hear them kind of they've got something burning in their soul some passion some philosophy of ministry that they're they're really passionate about and that that I could recognize. I, I, I talked a lot like that myself uh, years ago, and I, I, I want to sort of balance this sense of like uh, careful because you might be judging everybody else harshly on, on, on levels that you, you don't really understand how hard this is, but also wanting to say, hey, you know, if you're a leader and you've got a vision, like you need to go out and and chase it with the Lord's strength. And maybe, maybe you will be somebody that's able to, that the Lord uses to achieve this in ways that none of us ever did. So if you experienced that tension in, in talking to younger leaders, some. Um, yes. And it is a tension, you know, having, having taught seminary students for 30 years, mm. you know, there's part of you who, who wants to say to the, how do I say this to the guys who are kind of cocky and arrogant, it's going to be a lot harder than you think. It's going to be really tough. And for the guys who are so afraid, you want to be able to say, you know what? There, there are pleasures beyond your knowing that are ahead of you. And yeah. you know, you, you kind of have to pick your moments and pick your people. You know, kind of say, which do you tell? This could be harder than you think. You know, you don't have all the answers. And others that you want to say, hang in there. You know, there, the Lord will bring you blessings and privileges you never dreamed. Um, by by going into ministry. So, you you know, you want to say both. Absolutely. And and in the midst of that, you want to, you want to keep telling them the the most important things you need to be a Christian who seeks the Lord personally and is being uh, loved and transformed by the gospel personally. And then, and then honestly, you know, after your, the the integrity of your marriage, if, if it's someone who's married, uh, you, you're going to have to have friends in this journey. That's one of the. That's one of the very early questions that I ask young guys. Who's who's around you that is going to pick you up when you start to stumble? That's going to ask you questions you don't want to to ask. That's going to kind of pour courage into you when when you lose heart. 
so essential. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a tough one, Walter, because, you know, you, you know, you can fall off either end of the table. You can have pastors who don't think they need friends, who, mm-hmm. who those are not the ones you want to be your pastor, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, who, and by the way, you know, I'm, I'm a generation older than you in pastoral training, and I was taught while in seminary, you know, you should not have close friends in the church. Mm-hmm. You know, why? You're going to leave. They will hurt you. You can't really pastor them if you're too close a friend to them. I think that was terrible advice. I mean, just mm. absolutely terrible advice. Mm. And I think it came out of a lot of pastoral pain and, and some, you know, generational attitudes. But, mm. you know, to say, I mean, you need people who will pick you up. I mean, every place we have been um, as pastor, we have our closest friends for a lifetime. I mean, you know, mm. we just... Uh, the, the church where uh, Chris and I were for a while, uh, we, you know, Chris, we had, we had three couples from Peoria in our house this weekend, <laughs> you know, mm, people yeah. still visiting us and, and we love that. And, and, but of course, as important as it'd be buoyed up by those people and you need those people because mm. in any church situation, there's the inevitable conflict, difficulty, mm-hmm. matter of discipline, you say something somebody didn't like. You need those people to buoy you up. And uh, I mean, I know the Holy, I, you know, if I were really holy, I know it's a, the Holy Spirit can do that alone. But the Holy Spirit put people in my life to help <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, knows I'm human enough to put them around me. So <laughs> you need those people. And of course, you can't be real friends with them um, if you're not just expecting them to be friends to you, but you're pouring into them. You're, you're, mm-hmm you're confessing to them and being transparent and helpful and Mm. giving as well as getting, or they're not really friends. I I have found um, that's needed. I I don't know, Walter, I mean, you, you and I've both been pastors long enough to know there are times you stand in the pulpit and you almost dread getting up there because of the angry eyes, you know, are going to be looking back at you from some Mm. segment or group or couple or family or something, Mm. how much you need other sets of eyes. And I, I know I should be more holy and strong than that, but I, I need other sets of eyes to say, we still mm-hmm. love and trust you, and we want to hear the word of God from you. Mm-hmm. And, and those people are not there if I have not trusted them in other aspects of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's an observation that, that I've had now. You know, I, I'm not speaking at the pulpit. I'm not standing behind the pulpit, but, you know, as like a worship leader and uh, being on the platform on a regular basis, something that I have found is that everyone knows who I am. Like everyone in the congregation thinks they know who I am, but like, I don't know them. So how do you find those friends? um, And, and how do you get real with them and not just like the perception that they have of you because they see you on a weekly basis. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I imagine that's a, a universal feature of, of anyone in a leadership position, uh, especially when you're up on a stage in front of a lot of people on a regular basis that there's that, um, that lopsided intimacy, the, which is in some ways a false sense of intimacy because of its lopsidedness. Yeah. I, you know me, you, you've heard me pour out my heart, but uh, in many cases, I don't know much at all about you. Um, you know, uh, I, what, what comes to my mind is the way 
I, I, Brian's old friend, Tim Keller, talks about friendships as uh, one of the things about friendships in, in the Lord is that sometimes they just happen. Sometimes the Lord sovereignly opens up your heart, you know, like David and Jonathan, it, 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 how their hearts were knit to one another. You just, you see the Lord's hand in that kind of a friendship. And so uh, with, with pastors, I've been a lot more deliberate, like, Hey man, I just, I need you to be my, my friend. You seem like a good dude. <laughs> um, we're just going to walk through this together. Okay. But in terms of like deep heart friends, I, I, I find myself just trying to, to, to keep my heart open to see if the Lord would, would do some of that knitting in me and in them. Um, sometimes he's done it over time where it's somebody that I've sort of walked alongside for a number of years, just in a pastoral role. Uh, like w- one of our, um, one of our elders in our church, I, uh, I've just, just realized in the last few years, like there's a, there's a level of intimacy and affection with him that is, uh, familial in the sense that that's the only thing I can compare it to is how I feel about my family, my blood family members. And, uh, but that, that wasn't always there. And so I, I, and that's my first thought is just, you know, second Corinthians, I'll just throw out this. I, you know, when Brian was talking about that advice, don't be friends with people in your church. I think, did they teach second Corinthians there? Cause like, Paul is just, it's, it's insane, you know, open your hearts wide to us. We're opening our hearts to you. Like his, his emotional rawness is so, it's just dripping from every letter. And um, I, 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 there's a tendency to want to close up your heart to protect it, you know, but uh, somehow all of the wounds of, of loving people and being hurt by people doesn't, just form scar tissue. It just, it expands your capacity for others. And uh, that's got to be a gospel magic thing. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you could think of it so often and I'm, I'm back with you, you know, where Walter, what, what were they reading that they didn't think you should have friends in the church, you know? And yeah. also Paul, we, yeah. we loved you so much that we delighted <laughs> to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because yeah. you had become so dear to us. We were as yeah. gentle among you as a mother nursing a baby. And you're kind of going, but you weren't my friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. But yeah. I, I maybe um, I think as I, as I look back at years of ministry, there have been kind of different ways the Lord knit us to people. Mm. So um, in our first kind of major church assignment, uh, Kathy and I were a long way from both our sets of parents, and we were having young children. And um, we developed in Sparta, Illinois, that uh, Chris has heard of. We we developed what we called our Sparta grandparents. So there were these, mm. uh, there were four older couples, and they delighted to be grandparents to our children in town. And mm. and you know here we are, forty years later, and they are still dear dear friends to us. But they how do I, they connected us through the grandparent gene, you know, <laughs> with our with our kids, <laughs> and and in that same church, uh, just stage of life, we were a young couple raising young children, and the Lord had just put in that church this cadre of young couples with uh, children about the same age. So we were, you know, we were learning to diaper and discipline and have fun and all those things at the same time, you know, and those. Mm-hmm became dear to us. 
and as you know, as we've moved to other churches and other situations, I think we have found the connection points at different stages of life, different hop, you know, hobbies, habits. Um, I think my wife is so much of a better friend maker than I. She's just more open by nature. So often our friendships develop as I follow her into a friendship, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. And uh, I think it, it just is recognizing there's the necessity of that. Mm. So I don't know, Walter, if if it's fair to say, you know, to put my situation on yours. I well, I'll put this way. I remember that strange passage in in in, in Matthew 13 where it says that uh, Jesus could do no miracles there because they didn't believe in him. And you kind of went mm. away. You know, mm. he's the sovereign God of the universe. He could do miracles anywhere. Mm. And I think, what what's that saying? And I, I think, well, they didn't believe it. it. doesn't mean he couldn't, but there was this kind of this almost sapping of the power of the Holy Spirit from him because people weren't committing themselves to him. They weren't believing him in the sense of uh, that kind of heart's commitment. And I recognize that when I stand in the pulpit, and I think, I don't want to be like Jesus, but I want to say, if, when I know people believe in me, that they trust me, that they're committing themselves to my good and to the good of this ministry, I feel like I just, you know, I got, I can soar. You know, I just got the buoyed up of the family of God and the opposite can happen. The opposite can happen. You know, if I, if I step into the pulpit and, and it's happened at times for whatever controversy or reason or rumor, you know, that I'm facing a room full of angry people or suspicious people or dreary people. Mm. It shouldn't be this way, but I recognize, I feel like I just don't have strength to do what needs to be done. Mm. I'm not even trying to defend that. I'm just saying I'm human. And the Lord who knows those human dynamics has commended to us apostles and ministers in scripture who had dear friendships, knowing mm -hmm. that, that we need them to function well. Mm -hmm. And and that's because of our humanness. And I'll, I confess it, I I can operate without that, but not forever. You know, sometimes I sometimes I have to say, Lord, if, if everybody hates me because of this, I may still need to do it. Mm. But that's not the life I want to live all the time. You know, I, I hope those are rare occasions. Mm. And my I think my usual fuel and energy comes out of loving and being loved for the sake of Christ. And and that that I don't think is unbiblical. I, I think there is a, a reality to my humanity that God is strengthening by the relationships he is building into my life. Is that, is that being too human oriented, Walter? <laughs> I don't think so. And uh, at least, you know, there may be people unlike you or me who are able to just preach what they know to be true, no matter how it's received. And uh, I, I'm just, I'm not that holy. Uh, I, I, I need more encouragement than I ever really wanted to admit. I, I remember actually for years early in the ministry when anybody would say anything encouraging about a sermon or something about the church, like I almost had an instinct to, to write it off. And, and uh, so I, I'm not supposed to need that. I'm not, I'm, I'm not in this for the praise of man. Like I just like, I'd almost try to erase it from my, my memory. And uh, the, the more, I've, the longer I've been a pastor, the, the more likely I am to say, 
Now tell me exactly what it was that you appreciated in the sermon, because I want to know what the Lord was doing in you through that, because I'm going to need to remember this tomorrow when I'm replaying the sermon in my head, and it was all terrible and none of it made any sense. <laughs> I'm going to need to remember that something got to you. You can you can go both ways. You know, one one part of me says I'm I'm absolutely committed to believing what every older woman who's leaving the sanctuary told me was great about my sermon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to believe that, you know? Um, well, I know I can't do that, but I, I think of the contrary example of my father. Now my, my father was a, a lay Baptist minister mm. and he ministered in, in small uh, rural churches in Tennessee and Kentucky uh, mm. on the weekends. He was a, a businessman uh, during the week, but um you know, I, it was just in his church's tradition that you were not supposed to ever compliment a sermon, right? Because that was the work of the Holy Spirit. So you should mm -hmm. never compliment the man. And if anyone ever dared to say to my father, you know, oh, Pastor Chapel, they didn't say pastor. Oh, Brother Chapel, Brother Chapel, what a wonderful word. And he said, well, thank you. I'm, I'm sure the devil wanted you to say that. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of kept you from saying that ever again. But um, mm. I, I, you know, if the if the scriptures are correct in saying people have the gift of encouragement, which the scriptures do say, then mm. it's because people need the gift. It's because it's not it's not bad to need encouragement. If God mm. intends people to have that gift, then we should be willing to receive it. And uh, and and ultimately, I'm sorry to interrupt. It, uh, it's I just know part of growing up is learning to receive compliments well you know, and with grace too. And, and to, and to have to receive them in the frame of mind that, that you're not stealing glory from the Holy spirit. You're, you're actually giving him the glory because he's able to use such a flawed and broken instrument as you. So uh, mm. to, to try to take yourself out of the equation, I think ultimately uh, obscures the, the work of the spirit as well. Yeah. So I think, I think to be buoyed up, strengthened by praise mm. is a blessing and a privilege. To need praise is a weakness that will damage your ministry, right? So to, to, to thank God for it when it comes mm -hmm. um, is, is to use good fuel that God is providing. But to need praise, that, that will eat you alive. That will eat you alive and rob and you of the ability to do God's work. And and most likely you will eat people alive trying to get it from them. Yeah. Mm. Walter, you know, so in something you had said relatively recently, you talked about how you you're kind of a, a cool kid adjacent. Like you haven't <laughs> you didn't necessarily put it that way, but that you you are often viewed as like part of the cool kids, but never view yourself in that way. So I like, I don't know if you find yourself fighting that urge to like, try to, to fit into that crowd or like, um, you know, with kind of what we're talking about is like feeding off of that, um, affirmation. Like, is that a challenge that you find yourself facing where you're like, I, you know, I, I see these beautiful, popular, whatever successful people. I want to make sure that I'm resonating with them. Does do you find yourself fighting that? Mm. I think there's there's always a level at which we we are tempted to find security in being included in some kind of 
in a ring to, to use Lewis's term. And so that's, yeah, that's, that's always there in my heart uh, to, to some degree. I, I think if I know my heart correctly, though, I, I most delight in, in simply being in relationship with people where we can kind of push through whatever categories we're in, whatever, whatever other people perceive us as I, um, I've, I've known, uh, fellow pastors in ministry that, uh, that, that I could just see we're so consumed with these people in my church are powerful. These people in my church are wealthy. These people in my church are uh, scary or influential in some way. And of course you have to be mindful of those realities, but uh, what, what motivates me is to find out where is, where is this person in your church? Just another scared, insecure little kid like you are under the surface. And how can I, be somebody who who sees them as they are, instead of their shtick, their image, their uh, their curated profile on the social media pages, um, and that's and that's part of the great joy of being a pastor is that we're we're not just giving people life hacks for successful living, we're we're connecting them or, or helping in some. And the power of the spirit to facilitate God's work in their lives. And that always gets way under the surface of all of those other realities. And so I, I feel like when I'm when I'm most tuned into the Lord, somebody really important like Brian Chapel could be standing in front of me, and I could just see him as Brian, uh, brother, uh, child of God, um, needing grace just as much as I do. Or what does that do to your preaching when, I mean, I, you know, we, I mean, this is a site where we talk a lot about, mostly about preaching. Mm. What, what does knowing the friendships that people need and you need, mm. how does that affect your preaching? Mm. Uh, I think I, like most preachers have some uh, some common application themes that I <laughs> I return to maybe I might be a broken record about some of them um, I mean one of them is just you know we need each other the everything that the doctrine of the church across the scriptures teaches us that this the Christianity is a team sport and you you cannot do this alone I'm, I'm constantly trying to flush out the loner and uh, convinced him or her that that uh, person next to them that they're feeling self-conscious around is is somebody that they need and that person needs them. In fact, I had this this wonderful experience recently. Um, it was one of those encouraging moments I might have might have tried to throw away years ago, but I, I ran into a woman at the grocery store. She gave me this sort of look of recognition when we passed, and then uh, she she. Uh, grabbed me at the, in the next aisle and said, is your name Walter? And I said, yes. She said, you used to work out at the YMCA. And, uh, and I remember telling you that I used to go to church, but my husband died and I kind of lost track of it. And now I exercise on Sunday morning uh, because I wasn't really getting anything out of church anyway. And you said to me, yeah, but what about the people who need to see you on Sunday morning? What are they going to do without you there? 
And she said, and I couldn't get that out of my head. So I found a church and it's become my family. And, uh, and that's, that's the kind of, um, that's the kind of thing that shows up a lot in my preaching, uh, just trying to push people together, uh, you know, back to the, the loneliness of being a preacher sometimes. And that, that false intimacy that comes when people know you, uh, and I know Brian has experienced this in spades. Uh, sometimes people make a connection to you up front and they think, well, if I can just be in a relationship with this person, then I can get everything that I, that I need. And it's one of my deepest convictions is like, I'm, I'm probably the last thing that you need, right? I mean, people need pastors, but like they need, they need the body of Christ, mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, daughters and sons. Uh, so uh, that's, that's a huge thing that has influenced my preaching. I'm constantly telling people uh, a sermon is not enough. Uh, a Sunday is not enough. Um, you, you need a deep bench of relationships. It probably affects my preaching in other ways, but I'm, I'm, I'm not thinking of others yet. Well, uh, I, and I'm only thinking as I'm asking Walter, not not really knowing answers. I I think having deep friendships in the congregation makes you say things that affect you more as well, right? Mm. So you, you know, I, for about thirty years, I was a, what I call a jack jack in the box preacher. I was at a different church every Sunday, you know, representing an institution or a denomination. Mm. And um, I, I had lost track of the depth of what I felt when I preached to people I knew and loved and wasn't just mm. kind of representing an entity, but actually, yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't know how to say it, wrestling for souls to recognize yeah. this marriage is coming apart. Yeah. Um, this, this, this young person is really wrestling with this addiction or this wrong affection. And, mm. um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to uh, give somebody courage to face a, a sin or a difficulty or a boss or something and to stand in the pulpit and actually wrestle for the souls of those that you love. I mean, it brings something mm. far deeper out of you other than I'm trying to preach a good sermon here, you know, and I'm trying to impress yes. you or, or what it, it just, it, I, I felt this is kind of Francis Schaeffer. I felt more human. Mm. I felt felt more being what God had made me to be. Now I'm, I'm doing a different job again now for, I hope for the sake of the church, Mm. but I felt like I found a truer, deeper me by Mm. having to preach to people that were my friends, not, not just my supporters or whatever it were. Um, Mm. So I, it's hard. I think it's only by having had so many years of the Jack in the box experience that when I was actually preaching to people I knew and loved and was wrestling for them, that I felt the Lord was actually making my preaching more effective on me as well. Mm. As yeah. You said that so well. And, and that's, that's the heart of, of preaching for me. I, I don't think I have the, maturity or the gifts to preach regularly to people I don't know. Uh, it's, the, the, it's knowing the people in the, in the body that, that makes me want to mine God's word and look for unexpected angles and try to find crowbars to get it into that particular place in their heart that nobody's getting to. And I, 
a couple of things that come to mind. One, one is that I, I know when I'm, when I'm making an application that I can think of at least one, if not more people that are, that are in the, I know are in the room. I, I never look straight at them. <laughs> I, I, I just figure if I look straight at them, it's, it's going to be too tough for me to stay concentrating and for them to, I don't want to shame anyone in the moment, especially if it's a challenge. Uh, so I often am looking in the other direction and it's sort of in my peripheral vision. I'm like, I'm saying these words to you over here. <laughs> but then the second thing that often occurs to me is sometimes just in that very moment of telling somebody else something that I, that I know from pastoring them, they need to hear that I realized how much I need to hear it. Um, I said something about uh, on Sunday about how our our stingy love is unbecoming of one who has been rescued by the God we have been rescued by, and uh, and as I as the words were coming out of my mouth, I was like, "Yes, my stingy love is unbecoming of one who's had such a great salvation." So. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a powerful, it's a powerful experience. It's very intimate. It's very vulnerable. I mean, it's uh, three days after Easter, two days after Easter, and I'm still kind of uh, emotionally hung over from, from pouring out my heart to several hundred people. You know, so this, uh, this last Easter, so a few days ago, um, you know, I was, I was standing in the congregation. Normally I'm, I'm up at the front and I chose this Easter to like, just be with family. And just be able to to take it in, and uh, and so uh, we were we were singing, we were worshiping, and I just I started looking around the congregation and realizing like all the broken people that I knew in the church, and how when I was younger, I'm you know I don't think I'm that old yet, but like when I was younger, growing up, son of a pastor. I assumed everyone, especially members in the church, like had it all put together. And like, that's what the church is made up of. All these mm. people who are coming and they're showing the world how to live because like they've got mm. it figured out and because we have an amazing savior. And so, of course, we got it all figured out. And as I looked around and I saw all these, these people who I know are struggling and hurting and I, and I was like, wow, like this is the church, you know? Mm. And I think getting to know those people as a pastor can only strengthen your ability to minister to them. Um, and, and it doesn't have to just be people who are hurting. It can be people that are rejoicing, but if you know what they're going through, like how much that just changes the way that you're able to minister and the way that the Holy spirit can work through you and speak things that you may not even expect to come out of your mouth, but he's working in, in ways because you know, these people and, and, um, and yeah, it's just, it, it was, for me, it was like super emotional. And I, it was like mm. this aha moment of like, wow, the, the church is made up of broken people, but that's okay because we have a savior that has, has conquered death and sin. And mm. because of that, we can rejoice. Mm. Amen. And, and just to point out one other category, in addition to seeing all those people and you know, some of the particular kinds of brokenness they have. I think one of the, one of the most moving realities of knowing people in your church is, is knowing what some people are carrying and whether it's, it's some deep form of suffering or sorrow or, or just um, fighting against a, an addiction or, and, and to see them showing up and, and, 
belting out the hymns at the top of their lungs. And uh, there's, you know, it, it fuels your own faith just to watch them. And, and it even shapes the way you, you talk to them because, yeah, there's some people that you're trying to wake out of their slumber. You know, that old saw about afflicting the comforted, or, or afflicting the comfortable and also comforting the afflicted. And you're, you're looking at both of them in the same room, you know, and uh, such a, such a gift and a privilege. You guys are really, you're really reminding me what a, what a privilege it is to be a pastor. Chris, what Walter said is so beautiful. I want to end there. I just want to say amen and what a, what a beautiful way to think about what we do and how the Lord is using us. So, Walter, I'm so thankful for your willingness to be with us. And this has just been great. Thank you so much for insights and for heart. I really appreciate it. Thank you both. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Revealing Grace. What an encouraging way to end our conversation. If you enjoyed listening to this, whether this was your first episode of the podcast that you've listened to or you've been listening for a while, I would encourage you to subscribe. That way you'll be notified anytime a new episode is available. Also, when you get a chance, head on over to brianchapel.com. There are so many great resources available to you from Brian. I would specifically like to direct you to the courses that are available. These are seminary-level classes that have been taught by Brian, and they are just wonderful resources as you're looking to hone your craft, whether as a pastor or someone in full-time ministry, or maybe you're just seeking personal edification. There's just a great wealth of biblical truth that is available for you there. If you have any questions for us, uh, myself or Brian or any of the guests on the podcast, you can email us at revealinggrace at brianchapel.com. So on behalf of Brian Chapel, I'm Chris Sobeck, and we look forward to having you join us next time for Revealing Grace. Mm-hmm.